Well, good evening, everyone. I want to welcome you back to Jesus on Prophecy. Tonight, our topic is Revelation's Four Horsemen. And we are going to look at how we got to where we are today as a church. And so let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful and thankful that you have put it on our heart to come back yet another night for Jesus on Prophecy. You have put a hunger and a desire in our hearts for truth. And Lord, as we are discovering the truth, we are understanding, we are learning and growing, and Lord, we want to apply it to our lives and allow You to change us. And we're just praying and asking that the Holy Spirit will do those things in us that we cannot do in ourselves. And we pray and ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever been on a trip where you've gone out of town? Perhaps you're staying at a hotel for the weekend and you're looking for a church that you can go to. And so you pull out the phone book And you're just struck by the many different brands of Christianity. Right? You look at that and you wonder, how can there be so many different denominations? And I think that that is a valid question. And I think that the Bible is going to give us some insight into the answers to that. And so that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Because the average person is bewildered by this confusing array of churches. How can we understand why there are all these different brands of Christianity and there's only one Bible? And so, how did we get to this place? But a bigger question than that is, which church is right? Because you can't have all of these different brands, all of these different flavors, and they can't all be right. And so which one is the right one? And many people take the honest approach and they say, well, it doesn't really matter what denomination you're a part of. And then there are other people that even go further than that and they say, well, it doesn't even matter what religion that you are as long as you have a spiritual emphasis in your life. But I want to think about that thinking for a moment. Let's think about what that's really saying. If we're saying it doesn't matter which church you belong to and it doesn't matter which religion you belong to, what that's really saying is that all roads lead where? To heaven. And that's the theology of the day, isn't it? That we're all going to get to heaven and it doesn't really matter and so let's all just get along, right? That's the idea that has crept into the church. A little lie over thousands of years and pretty soon it's being taught that way. But the Apostle Paul says something that's very intriguing to me to the church of Ephesus. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5, he says there's one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. And so the idea there that we're getting from Paul is that there's only one true church. That's what he seems to be indicating. And that's not the only thing Paul has to say. He also says something to the Corinthians. So turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. That's going to be page 1318 if you're using one of those seminar Bibles. And I want you to notice what Paul says to the church in Corinth and what he's saying to us. And we're going to look at verse 10. Paul says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, isn't that amazing? Paul says that his desire for the church is that we would all be of one mind 
and we would all be of one judgment. In other words, we would all be united on the truth. That's his desire for the church. And you know, that's not something new to Christianity. In fact, Jesus himself, in John chapter 17, he was praying for us, and he said that his desire is that we would be united just like he and the Father are united. Now, do you think Jesus and the Father are united? Absolutely, right? They are together. They are thinking the same way. They're going in the same direction. They have the same plan of salvation for man. They are united. And His desire for us is that we would be united just like they are. And here we have Paul saying essentially the same thing. That we would be of one mind and one judgment. But I want you to notice that Paul doesn't stop there because he's got a problem that he's dealing with here in the church of Corinth. Notice what he says in verse 12. He says, Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Here Paul is saying, I would desire that you would all be in one accord, that you would all be united, that you would all be of the same mind and the same judgment, but you're not. Because some of you are saying that you're following Paul, and some are following Cephas or Peter, some are following Christ, and you have this division among you. And then the reality is, is that Paul and Peter and Christ were all talking about the same thing, right? But you have this division among you, and it's not supposed to be that way. In fact, here's another thing that Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. He says, "...these things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly." But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of God, the what? The pillar and ground of truth. Here Paul is saying that the primary purpose at the very core of the church and what it's supposed to do is it is supposed to promote and proclaim the truth. That's the primary purpose of the church. In fact, in John chapter 17, in verse 17, Jesus said, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Right? And so the church is to be the pillar and the ground of truth. I don't know if you have heard this term before or not, but the problem that we have in the church today is that many people believe that truth is relative. Have you heard that? They have a name for that today. It's called postmodernism, right? And the belief that has crept its way even into the church is that there's no absolute truth, but truth is relative. And that's a serious problem that is in the church because, you know, apparently that postmodern idea, that's been around for a long time. Because you remember when Jesus was before Pilate and Jesus said, I came to bear witness to the truth. What did Pilate say? What is truth, right? So apparently postmoderns have been around for a long time. But here's this idea that truth is relative. But what we see from the Word of God is that truth is absolute, right? Truth gives us security. Truth gives us comfort. And that's why we find that people are willing to come out to a prophecy series like this one because we have this sense that there is absolute truth and that we can understand truth. Remember, Jesus said, I'm going to send you the Comforter and He is going to guide you into all truth. And so there's this idea that we can know truth and that truth is absolute 
And that truth gives us comfort and it gives us security. And so that brings up the question, have you ever wondered, how can I find truth? Where do I go? Well, I want to let you in on a little secret. You don't find truth by going to a church. Let me say that again. You don't find truth by going to a church. You find truth in the Bible. And then, when you know the truth, then you find a church that is teaching in harmony with the Bible. So you don't find truth in a church. You find it in the Bible. And then you find a church that's teaching the truth. That's how it should be, right? You never go to a church to discover truth. The truth is in the Word of God. But you find a church that's teaching the truth. And that's why we've adopted this theme for our series. If it's in the Bible, I believe it. But if it disagrees with the Bible, then it's not for me. Bible prophecy clearly reveals why there are so many different denominations in the Christian church. And when you turn to the Bible, and specifically to the book of Revelation, and specifically to chapter 6, I'd like you to turn there because we're going to look at it, but in chapter 6 of Revelation, we discover this marvelous vision of these four horsemen that gallop across the sky. So let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation 6. And in this vision of the four horsemen, God has revealed the history of Christianity more clearly than in any other place in the Bible. He's revealed the history of Christianity from the first century church all the way down to our day in the 21st century. He has revealed how Christianity began as one movement and then how it began to fragment and now how the devil is trying to bring it all back together under one umbrella and he'd be the head of it. And at the same time, Christ is trying to bring His people back to the truth. And that's the whole picture of the Christian church. And one of the most fascinating and one of the most exciting prophecies in all of the Bible is this one in Revelation chapter 6. Revelation's four horsemen represent four successive ages in the history of the Christian church. And the author of this prophecy is the one who opens the seals of the scroll that he has been handed. It is none other than Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is the one who's giving us this prophecy. Do you think that that God knows what's going to happen in His church before it happens? Amen. And so He is the one that's giving us this history. And so let's look in our Bibles at Revelation chapter 6 and verse 1. It says, Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I'm going to pause there for a moment. Who is the Lamb of Revelation? This is Jesus Christ, right? And so He's opening the seal to this scroll, and it says, And I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a loud voice like thunder, Come and see. And so Jesus is going to give John a history of Christianity. And he continues in verse 2, and it says, And I looked, and behold, a white horse, he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. And so here we see this first horse, and it's a white horse, And on it is a man with a crown on his head and a bow in his hand. And the idea is that he is going out to conquer and he has already conquered and he's going to continue to conquer. And this first period is represented by 
this white horse. Now, white is a symbol of purity, right? And the one riding the horse is wearing a crown, giving us a symbology of victory. And he's going out to conquer and is conquering. And so the first phase or the first period of the Christian church is pictured by this rider on this white horse who is triumphant and he is conquering all of the forces of evil. And so this white horse represents a powerful church and a pure church. And in the New Testament, God's truth triumphed. And that church began in 31 A.D. at the death and ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven. And that first century church went out to A.D. 100. That's approximately how long the last apostle lived until. And that was John. He was the youngest of all of the apostles. And so while the apostles were alive, the church was strong. The church was pure. And so we have Jesus opening this first seal and we see this white horse that is symbolic of a pure faith. And it went all the way out to 100 A.D., And that was at the death of the apostles. And it was a conquering church. In fact, one Roman writer wrote this. You Christians are everywhere. You are in our armies. You are in our navies. You are in our marketplace and the shops. And you are in our senate and our universities. You are everywhere. Because the New Testament church was growing rapidly. And so even this one Roman says, you guys are everywhere. There's nothing that could stop the progress of Christianity in the first century. And so like a white horse victorious, like a white horse conquering, the Christian church moved through that first phase of church history And the power of the Gospel could not be stopped. Even though the dragon tried to stop the church, even though there was persecution from within, but it was the Jews who were persecuting the Jews at this point in the first century of Christianity. They were trying to stamp out this new sect called Christians. And you can read about Saul of Tarsus, how he was given letters from the church to go to Damascus and other places like that to try and put an end to Christianity, but they couldn't do it. And there's a very powerful lesson that we can learn from this first century church. And that is when men and women do not compromise the truth in their own life, the church is powerful. Right? When we are doing what God has called us to do, when we are living a life of faith, when we have the power of God in us, and He is living out His life through us, there is power in the church. You see, God can't sanctify error, but the powerful new Testament church, armed with the truth of God and filled with the Holy Spirit, made an impact on the world. They reached the then known world in one century. It couldn't be stopped even though the devil tried to stop it. But then we move through history and we go to the second phase or the second period of church history and Jesus opens the second seal of that scroll and that brings us to the red horse. And let's look at that here in Revelation 6. Look with me in verse 4. The Bible says, Another horse, fiery red, went out and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth and that people should kill one another And there was given to him a great sword. Now, what happened is Satan realized that he couldn't stop the church 
with just the leaders of the church trying to bring everyone back under the umbrella of Judaism. And so now, the devil kicks it into gear, if you will, and now he starts influencing political leaders to viciously persecute the Christians. And so this red horse represents a bloody faith. Christians were thrown to the lions. They were tortured. They were killed with the sword. And so it's representing this next phase of Christianity, this next period from 100 A.D. to 313 A.D. And this is referred to as a blood-stained faith. And it's interesting because from 100 to A.D. 313, now they're not just being persecuted by the hierarchy of the Jewish church, but now they're being persecuted by the leaders, the governments of the world. And it's interesting that it takes us to 313 A.D. Because in 313 A.D., that's when you start having the Roman government starting to fall apart. It's starting to disintegrate from the inside out. And now you have the Roman Emperor Constantine who comes on the scene. And so we have the white horse representing this apostolic power, this purity of the church. And then you have the red horse. This is a blood-stained faith. And where the white horse represents a church triumphant, now you have the red horse symbolizing a church being persecuted. But the church still grew. It kept on growing, even though there was persecution. In fact, one early church writer wrote this, The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the Gospel. The more you persecute us, the more we grow. That's what was happening in that second period, that second part of Christian history. You have persecution going on, but the church is still growing. And so now the devil realizes... He's not having any effect. The church is still growing. And so now he's got to change his strategy. And now what he's going to do is instead of persecuting, now he's going to do something else. And this is where the third phase of church history comes in and we see this black horse period. Look with me in Revelation 6 verse 5. It says, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come and see. So I looked and behold, a black horse and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. So after 200 years of persecution, Satan realizes that his persecution of Christians is not snuffing out the church like he hoped it would. And so now he changes his strategy. Rather than attacking from outside of the church, now he's going to move and he's going to start attacking from within. And he's going to introduce compromise into the church. He's going to bring pagan practices into the church. And so his master strategy is now to destroy the church from within. And so when Jesus opens up this third seal, we have this black horse. But the white horse in the first phase of Christian church, the first period of Christianity, That white horse represented purity, but now you have compromise coming into the church, and now it's represented by a black horse. Because where you had purity before, now you have a mixture 
of truth and error that's coming into the church. And it's interesting to notice that this time began in 313 A.D. at the coming of the time when Constantine was trying to bring the country, the the nation, the kingdom back together. It was becoming divided. You had the Christians and you had the pagans. And so he's trying to bring the two of them together. And so he brings compromise in, bringing the pagans into the church and bringing error in with it. But it goes out to 538 A.D. And if you remember that, that's when we see the papacy coming on the scene. And so we have this time period before the Roman papacy, but we see that corruption, we see that error, we see that tradition and pagan practices are coming into the church already. And so we have a black horse representing compromise rather than a white horse representing purity and we can see those the white horse represented a pure faith the red horse represented a blood-stained faith and now we have a compromised faith represented by this black horse and it's interesting too that the apostle paul actually saw this black horse time of church history he actually saw it and he was concerned about it in his day and so in acts chapter 20 verse 29 and 30 notice what the apostle paul says he says for i know this that after my departure savage wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Here we see that Paul already was anticipating this compromise that was going to creep into the church. And he says, you're going to have people from outside the church coming in, and you're going to have people within the church who are going to come up and they're going to start introducing some strange doctrine. They are going to start bringing error into the truth. He says, speaking perverse things to draw people away from the truth. And so we see in this period that the teachings of men would be substituted for the teachings of God. Now we have error. Now we have tradition. Now we have these pagan practices that are being brought into the church. And they are uh, teaching perverse and crooked things. And so we have this compromise that's going on. But here's the strangest thing of all. The church was growing during the persecution. Satan couldn't stop it. And so he switches his tactics. Now he's trying to corrupt the church from within. But even then, the church grows even more. Now you have an explosion of growth because now you have the pagans and the Christians coming together and they're all coming into the church. But there's a very powerful lesson in that for us. And you know what that is? The devil doesn't mind if you go to church as long as they're teaching error. Amen? And so the devil is working here to bring this corruption from within to destroy the church from the inside out. And it's working... And the church is growing, but he's okay with that because all of this error is coming in. And human tradition is taking the place of the Bible. In Daniel chapter 8, verse 12, we read about the Antichrist, and it says that he cast truth to the ground, and he did all of this and prospered. Now, in church history, the Antichrist hasn't come on the scene yet. That's going to happen with the next horse. But we see this spirit of Antichrist that John was talking about in 2 John already working within the church. We already see this corruption and this error coming in. And church history reveals that this prophecy is absolutely true. I want you to notice something that it says in the book, The Development of Christian Doctrine, page 372. And this is from a very famous Christian historian. Notice what he says. He says, We are told by Eusebius, 
that Constantine, in order to recommend the new religion to the heathen, transferred into it the outward ornaments to which they had been accustomed in their own. What's he saying here? He's saying now we've got this corruption coming into this church. Now we've got this error. Now we've got this pagan practices and pagan doctrine. And you have all of these pagans that were worshiping their gods, but now they're bringing the ornaments of that, the idols of that, the images of that into the Christian church. And now you've got a statue that used to represent Jupiter but now it represents Peter. And now you've got a statue that used to represent Tammuz and her baby, now representing Mary and baby Jesus. So now you have these images being brought into the church and they're bowing down to those images. They're worshiping saints. They're worshiping Mary. And somebody apparently pointed it out. And you would think that the church would have said, oh, we got to correct this. we got to fix this. But their answer to fixing it was, well, let's just remove the second commandment. Then we don't have a problem with bowing down to images or idols. Right? And so we can see how through history these things began to happen. And we see that this transfer of these outward ornaments, which the pagans are accustomed to, now they're bringing them into the church. And the Bible gives truth away. Truth is cast to the ground. And now these superstitions and these traditions and this error is now coming into the church. And now even the priests are elevated to a level where now you go to the priest instead of going to Jesus. And so now you have salvation through Christ being replaced by the requirements of the church. Now you're told, instead of going to Him, now you have to go to a priest for absolution from your sins. And so this is how these things are creeping into the church. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And so during this period of compromise, simple faith and trust in the merits of Christ and in the grace of God is now being replaced with certain pagan practices like the lighting of candles, like bowing down before these images that are being brought into the church, worshiping saints, worshiping Mary. And the church presumes to change the law of God, including the acceptance of idol worship and the neglect of the Sabbath. During this age of compromise, the pagan's day of the sun begins to replace the Bible Sabbath. And many Christian leaders are promoting Sunday worship in order to separate themselves from the Jews and to make it more acceptable to the pagans who are already worshiping the sun on Sunday. And so now Sunday comes in to replace the Sabbath. And Christian history reveals this. And you can go to any library or you can go online and you can look these things up for yourself. I want you to notice what it says in the book History of the Eastern Church, page 184. It says, The retention of the old pagan name of Dias Solis for Sunday is in a great measure owing to the union of pagan and Christian sentiment with which the first day of the week was recommended by Constantine to his subjects, pagan and Christian alike, as the venerable day of the sun. And so Satan's master strategy was to influence powerful Christian leaders to unite with powerful state leaders in the black horse period of Christianity. And they compromised. 
the pagan Roman emperor Constantine united the Roman church and trying to unite the empire. And here's the thing. He used Sunday as the vehicle to do it. And friends, just like we talked about a couple of nights ago, the Pope today is doing the exact same thing. He's going to use Sunday as the vehicle to bring the whole world together. We can see history repeating itself. You want to know why? Because the saying goes that if you forget your history, you're what? You're doomed to repeat it, right? And that's exactly where we're headed. I want you to notice in a doctrinal catechism, page 174, the third American edition, the Catholic author of that catechism writes a question-answer format. Here's the question. Have you any other way of proving that the church has power to institute festivals of precept? That's the question that they ask. Here's their answer. Had she not such power, she could not have done that which all modern religionists agree with her. What are they saying? They're saying, by the mere fact that we did this, it proves that we have the authority to do it. That's called cyclical reasoning. We talked about that the other night, didn't we? I used the example. If I say to you, spam is the greatest meat that was ever given because there's no greater meat in the world, you would say you haven't proved anything. And you would be right. But now the church does the exact same thing. They say, if we didn't have the power to do it, we couldn't have done what we did. That doesn't prove you have the power or the authority. But it goes on to say, she could not have substituted the observance of Sunday, the first day of the week, for the observance of Saturday, the seventh day. A change for which there is no scriptural authority. And so here we have church and state united, and they change the Sabbath corporate day of worship to Sunday, and they change the commandments of God, the law of God, and the times of God, and you have this mixture of Christianity and paganism. And so idol worship and Sunday worship were acceptable to the pagans, and apparently they were even acceptable to the Christians in this black horse period, and the church exploded. The church grew even at a faster rate, because now anybody can come into the church, right? And they can bring all of their pagan practices with them, and so we have, even amongst all of this, church growth And so that takes us to the fourth seal. And that's the pale horse. Look with me at verse 8. Revelation 6, verse 8. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was death, and Hades, that's the grave, followed with him, and power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth." I want you to imagine this for a moment because this is talking about church history, right? And now you have a dead rider who is riding on a horse that is almost dead. And so what is this symbolizing? During this period known as the Dark Ages, remember what the last horse took us to? To 538, right? That's when we have the rise of the papacy. And so now we have the dark ages from 538 onward and the church grew so large and they started building these huge cathedrals. But even during this time, there's now a major amount of persecution that's going on to God's true church, to God's true people. You have a church and state united that has apostatized and because of that that church is now spiritually dead and here is an amazing statement about that church history from the 2nd century chapter 2 section 7 
Christianity became an established religion in the Roman Empire and took the place of paganism. Christianity, as it existed in the Dark Ages, might be termed baptized paganism. That's a pretty powerful statement, isn't it? Because when you substitute the pagan sun god for true Sabbath worship, that's baptized paganism. And that's what we have during this pale horse time period. So you have Jesus opening up seal number four. You see the pale horse, which represents a dead faith. And I want you to notice it started at the rise of the papacy and it went all the way to 1798. That's the 1260 years of papal terror reign that we talked about already, isn't it? And so you have really a dead spirituality even though the church is growing. It is casting truth to the ground. Error is prospering and the church is still growing. It's an amazing thing, right? And it takes us through this time period of the Antichrist rule. And so the white horse represented a pure faith. The red horse represented a blood-stained faith. The black horse, a compromising faith. And the pale horse, a dead faith. Now the question is, when you have this union of church and state, and you have the decrees that are going out and placing tradition and the teachings of the church over the Bible... What's going to be the result of that? You're going to have faithful Christians who are going to be chained during the Dark Ages. They're going to be marched to the stake where they're going to be burned. They're going to be taken to the torture rack. They're going to be eaten by the lions. They're going to be cut with the sword. They're going to be tortured and they are going to be killed. And that's exactly what history shows. And you see this during this period, you see these steps of compromise that lead to spiritual death. It starts off with traditions making their way into the church. And then you have penances that take place that are supposed to be more important than the grace of Christ. And then you have indulgences where where supposedly you can pay money to get your family members out of purgatory, which is supposedly this place between heaven and hell, which is strictly a pagan doctrine. And the church is developing these ideas. And then you start bringing these images into the church and people start bowing down to them and worshiping the saints and worshiping Mary. And you can't just fix that or you should fix it, but instead what they do is they take the second commandment out. They change the law of God. And then you have the church hierarchy starting to substitute Sunday for Sabbath worship. You have the hierarchy starting to say, no, you don't go to Jesus for absolution. You come to us. And it just keeps going down. Now you have human dogmas, human teachings, the doctrines of men that are placed above the commandments of God. And for centuries, God's truth is cast to the ground. And so the question is, would God's truth be trodden down forever? Or would the light of truth ever shine again? Would God's Word ever be the foundation of the church again? Remember what the church is supposed to be? The pillar and ground of truth, right? So listen to this. This is in Jude verse 3. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Here we see Jude saying that we need to contend for the faith. Right? We need to get back to the truth. 
And we've got this period of time when truth was cast to the ground, error prospered, it kept going down, 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 the steps away from spiritual life, and now God has said that that papal reign of terror would end in 1260 years. We've come to 1798, and now it's time for God to start raising up courageous men and women who would be faithful to His Word, be faithful to the truth, and begin to restore truth. And so one of those groups were the Waldensians. These were Bible-believing Christians who lived in northern Italy and southern France. And the popular church of the day was persecuting them. And so they had to run into the Swiss Alps and other places to get away from that persecution. And now God's true church is going into hiding. And you can see some of these. This is a hidden Waldensian mountain village. There are still some of those around today. This is where men and women who stood faithful to God's Word would go and and get away from the persecution and go into hiding. And their motto was, Our mind is held captive to the Word of God. They were faithful to the Word of God. This is a secret Bible school where their young Waldensian uh, students, where people would come to study God's Word. They would hand write the Word of God on papers, parchment, and then they would go into the cities of Europe and they would be students and peddlers. And whenever they met someone that they felt that they could trust, someone that was hungering and thirsting for the truth, they would give them the Word of God so that they could read it for themselves. And so these people were spreading the Gospel at the potential cost of their own lives. And so the Waldensians restored the truth that we should lean on the Bible and the Bible only. And I don't know about you, but I agree with them, right? We should go by the Bible and not by the commandments of men. And so God raised up a variety of men and women to start restoring the truth. And then there was John Huss from Prague, Czechoslovakia. He was a Catholic priest who began studying the Word of God for himself And when he did, he declared, obedience to God is my motto, not obedience to men. And where do you suppose that got him? Right? He was burned at the stake for having the audacity to go against the popular church, the corrupt church, to say that we need to be obedient to God. And so that's the next rung up the ladder of restoring the truth of God's Word. And we see that the Waldensians restored the Bible and the Bible only, and then Huss comes along and says, yeah, we need to be obedient to the Word of God. And then God raised up another Catholic priest by the name of Martin Luther. He was a mighty man of faith. But Martin Luther himself struggled with the issue of faith. And so he would go on these pilgrimages trying to find faith, trying to increase his faith. And so he went to Rome, and there he came to this stairway that is supposedly the stairway that Pilate would have taken when he was condemning Jesus. And Martin Luther is trying to do penance. And so he thinks that if he can climb these stairs all the way to the top on his knees, that he will have earned some salvation. He would whip himself trying to get rid of the sin in him. And so he really was struggling to find peace in his faith. And when he returned back home to Germany, he felt just as oppressed and just as guilty about his sin that he had ever done. So these pilgrimages and these pedants hadn't done anything to help him in his faith. And so then when he got back to Wittenberg, he went to the church 
And he began to read the Bible for himself. The Bible was chained to the wall. You couldn't take it out of there. It was only in Latin, so only the priest could read it. But of course, he knew Latin, so he sat there and he began to study. And as he did, he came across Romans chapter 1, verse 17, which says, "...the just shall live by faith." And that had a huge impact on Luther. He also went to Acts chapter 4, verse 12, where it says there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And all of a sudden, he saw in Christ a Savior, and he realized that all of those penances, all of those whippings that he did himself weren't going to save him. There was nothing that he could do to earn salvation. It was a free gift of God, and he had a born-again experience. And when he did, it changed his life. And so, I believe that Martin Luther realized that salvation comes not by works of our hands, but because of faith in Christ and the work that He did on the cross. And so now you have Luther coming and restoring the idea that your works won't save you. That we have to believe and that we are saved by grace through faith. And it's not of works, but it is a gift of God. And so we see Luther come along. And the light of Jesus begins to penetrate the darkness. God is restoring the truth. But you see, here's the problem. The problem is that when people would follow a leader that God had raised up, someone like Luther, and then Luther dies, now the people plant their stake and they call themselves Lutherans. Right? And now when God continues to bring truth out, the people call themselves Lutherans. We can't go any further. And just as it took 500 years to go from the white horse first period of Christianity all the way to the fourth to the pale horse, it's going to take a bit of time for God to restore the truth. If God all of a sudden just dumped all truth on us, we'd be overwhelmed. And so just like it took 500 years to get away from the truth, it's going to take a while to get back to it. But God then gradually begins restoring the truth. In the 13 and 1400s, you have the Waldensians restoring the truth about the Bible. You have Huss bringing out the idea that we need to be obedient. And then in the 1500s, 1517, Luther nails his 95 theses to the wall. And so, God is restoring, but this is why we have all of these denominations. Because the Waldensians saw the truth about the Bible, but when Huss came out and brought out more truth, they refused to go along with. And the same up the line. And you know, I find that's still the answer today. That's still what happens. I talk to people and I say, hey, let's study the Bible. And they say, oh, I already have a church. I say, okay, that's great. Doesn't your church study the Bible? They say, I already know what I believe and I'm good. You see, what happens is when we become Lutherans, we plant our stake and we lose that spirit of investigation. And when God raises up the next great leader like John Calvin from Geneva, Switzerland, Calvin emphasizes the importance of Christian discipline and growing in grace, but the Lutherans refuse to go along, the Hussites refuse to go along, and so now you got to raise up the Presbyterian church. And so the problem is that God desired that His people would continue to grow as He's restoring truth. But the problem is we plant our stake and say, oh, I'm good. I've got all the truth I need. Right? There was a guy by the name of John Robinson who I think understood perfectly what God intended. He was the pastor of the Puritan pilgrims who sailed on the Mayflower to America. But he was unable to make the journey with them. 
And so before they left, He admonished them with these words, If God should reveal anything to you by any other instrument of His, in other words, any true reform movement, be as ready to receive it as ever you were to receive any truth of My ministry. For I am very confident the Lord hath more truth and light yet to break forth out of His holy Word. That's a powerful statement. He figured it out. He had it. But He didn't go with them to America. And so you have the same problem going on when God raises up the next truth. Now all of a sudden, people come along and they say, hey, infant baptism isn't biblical. And now you have the truth coming out about how a person should be baptized. And now you have the Anabaptists that come along and the rest refuse to go along with that truth, right? In Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20, Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so here we see the Anabaptists coming along, and they're saying a baby can't do that. Because Jesus said, teach them, then baptize them, and then teach them some more. And a baby can't do that. So now we've got another denomination. The Anabaptists were the forerunner of the Baptists. And so now we have another denomination. But then God's still got more truth to bring up. So He brings along John Wesley. And John Wesley talked about the standards of the church and how they were decaying. And people are coming into the church and they're bringing their amusements, they're bringing their pleasures, they're bringing their jewelry, they're bringing all of the practices of the world. And Wesley says, we've got to get back to the truth. Right? And so now we have Wesley saying, look, we should be holy. We should be different from the rest of the world. But the rest refused to go along with them because they had planted their stake and they had all the truth that they thought that they needed. I don't know about you, but I believe in holiness. Right? I believe that Christians should be different than the rest of the world. And I believe that the church should be separate. It should be different. And I believe that if you're a Christian, you should look like a Christian. You should act like a Christian. You should eat like a Christian. You should dress like a Christian. Right? And claiming to be Christian, but then drinking alcohol and, and watching worldly entertainment and dressing like the rest of the world, that's not Christianity. That's deception. And that's self-deception on many parts. But... There's another long lost sight of truth that needed to be restored. And so then God brought out the truth about the second coming of Christ and He raised up a man by the name of William Miller to proclaim the truth of the second coming of our Lord. And so then again, we have those who already thought they had all they needed and they refused to continue in that growth process. And they neglected the truth of the Lord's soon return. And so God raises up this whole new movement called Adventists. And the reason they were called Adventists is because they believed in the second advent or the second coming of Christ. And so, uh, do you believe that Jesus Christ is coming soon? Yeah, and so we have all of these truths that are being restored, but there was one more important biblical truth that needed to be restored yet. And that truth is faith that leads to obedience to the commandments of God and the special truth regarding the Sabbath as a symbol of God's creative authority and a sign between us and Him that He is our God. And so Christ is raising up a last day movement that will finally restore all of those truths and the truth about the Ten Commandments in a time when the church says you no longer need to keep the commandments of God. 
a last day movement that will take seriously God's instructions through Jesus Christ. John 14, verse 15, Jesus said it plainly. If you love me, do what? Keep my commandments. That's right. And so Jesus is going to have this last day movement that is outlined in the book of Revelation. And He is going to have a group of people that are symbolized by these angels. And by the way, angel just simply means messengers, right? And so these last day messengers are proclaiming that three-part message that we already talked about that starts off with worship Him who made heaven and earth. God is calling all of humanity back to worshiping Him as the Creator of everything. And He is calling humanity back to the truth, back to His commandments, and showing us that He has given us a specific way that He wants us to worship Him. And He's calling us out of the world. He's calling us out of that corrupt church, the apostate mother and the harlot daughters, to be a people that are so much like His Son that you can't tell the difference. In an age of evolution, God would restore the truth about creation and the Bible Sabbath. And God is gathering together today a group of people that are going to restore all of those truths that were lost in the dark ages. And the Bible's last book, Revelation, identifies who those people are. Revelation chapter 14, verse 12 says, here's the patience of the saints. Here are those who do what? keep the commandments of God, and they have the faith of Jesus. That means they have all of those truths that Jesus has revealed, and they are doing all of it. And they are growing in faith in Christ. It is a people that God is calling out. He's calling them out of that apostate broken church system, men and women of every language group, of every tribe and tongue, uh, called out people. That's what he is looking for. And so in a sense, I'm a Waldensian because I believe that we should go by the Bible and the Bible only. And in a sense, I'm a Hussite because I believe that we should be obedient to the Word of God. And in a sense, I'm a Lutheran because I believe that salvation comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And in that sense, I'm a Presbyterian because I believe in the organization of the church as taught by the Bible. And I'm also a Baptist in the sense that I believe that baptism is by full immersion. And I'm also a Methodist because I believe that God has called us to holiness. He's called us to be different and separate from the world. And I'm an Adventist because I believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ. And I'm a Seventh-day Adventist because I believe in the Bible Sabbath of the seventh day. And do you see how God is calling us to follow all of those truths? Not to plant our stake and say, I'm this or I'm that, but rather we are following all of those truths. And I believe that God is raising up a movement in these last days, and the book of Revelation is calling men and women all over the planet to do something unusual. To set the standard high to come out of pagan theology, errors, and a broken, corrupt system and stand for Him. You see, there have been men and women throughout all of church history who have stood for the truth. And they have proclaimed the everlasting Gospel in the context of present truth. Noah preached the everlasting gospel in his day. And what was the present truth of his day? God's going to destroy the world. You need to repent and get on the boat. Right? And what is present truth for our day? Present truth is what Revelation 14 verse 6 says. 
the hour of His judgment has come, you need to get right with God now. Revelation 14, verse 8. What's present truth today? Babylon is falling. Babylon is what God calls this entire corrupt system. And when the truth begins to be restored, error is exposed and Babylon falls. And then we have the rest of the truth in Revelation 14.9 which says, don't take the mark of the beast. And that is a message that is going to be going to the world very, very soon. That is present truth for our time. Don't get caught up in the deceptions of the dragon and the Antichrist and the false prophet. They are leading you to a place where the Bible says the whole world wondered after the beast. And so we want to make sure that we are not a part of that. And the only way that we can do that is to follow all of the truths that God is giving us. God is calling us out. He's calling us to be different. He's calling us to be separate from the world and not to follow the beast. And He's calling us to do things the way He says that we should. He has set aside that special day. He sanctified it. He made it holy. And He said, this is My day and I want you to keep it holy. And I want you to keep all of My commandments in a time and in a world when everyone's saying you don't have to. We're no longer under the law, but we're under grace. And tonight we have an opportunity once again to surrender our hearts to the truth and say, you know what? I've been in this church over here, but I realize now I have planted my stake And I need the rest of the truth. And I need to come out of this broken, corrupt system. And I need to take a stand with God's last day people. Is that the desire of your heart? You want to stand with God's last day people? Then stand now. And let's pray. Father in Heaven, I am just so grateful and thankful how You make the Word of God so clear to us that even a child can understand it. It's not the really smart people. It's not the PhDs. But it's even simple people like me that can understand the truth. And Lord, we thank You that You have brought us here to help us to see the deceptions that are going on, to see the error, the traditions, the pagan practices that have come in and corrupted Your church but we also see how You have been restoring the truth since the early 1300s. And Lord, we want to be a part of that last day church that stands for the truth. We want to be those that are able to stand at the brightness of Your coming while everyone else is being destroyed. And Lord, it may cost us something, but we pray You'd give us the strength to go through it. You tell us to count the cost, and there's certainly a cost associated with giving our hearts to You. But Lord, we pray that You would help us through it. Because we know there's also a cost associated with not doing it. And we pray that You'd bring us through. In Jesus' name, Amen.